enter the last chapter today, and uh, we will be in this for probably a couple of weeks. There's some really good stuff in here that we want to look at and want to talk about. I'm really excited about getting into uh, 2 Corinthians when we're done. I think that our church is at the point now where so many of you are really uh, ready to get into that phase of ministry where you really start working with people. And, you know, really that is the ministry. The ministry is, is, is people. Most churches, their aspect of ministry is ministering to inanimate objects. And uh, really in the Bible, ministry is people. Have a church full of people who minister to people and you have a healthy church. And so I'm excited in helping you fine-tune what God has already given you the burden for and to bring others along and really help you uh, in all of that. But we'll finish up this chapter here in the next month or so and glean out of this what we can. But we already know that this church is the most carnal church in the New Testament. It really stands in great contrast to the book of 2 Corinthians when they kind of get their act together. We know because what we have been doing up to this point is looking at these books in the New Testament, really throughout the whole Bible, and seeing how Christ is being portrayed in them. And we know that in this book, Christ is portrayed as Christ my Lord. Uh, But that's far from the case, isn't it? We now know if there's anything that is clear in this book, it's the fact that uh, Jesus was not definitely the Lord of other lives, neither as a church or in the individual lives of the people that's in that church. Every chapter, <clears throat> every chapter so far we've seen an issue. In most chapters we've seen multiple issues. And that's typical of God's people who, who just don't grow. And uh, they get fall under the influence of other Christians who don't grow, <clears throat> and the whole system just kind of breaks down. And I'm going to read chapter uh, 16, verses 1 through 8. And then uh, we'll make some comments on it as we get into it. I pray that you'll open your Bible and open your heart and hear what God's got for you today uh, as we come down through this chapter. Now, here's what he says. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God has prospered him, (coughs) that there be no gatherings when I come. And when I come, uh, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. And if it be meet that I go also, they shall go with me. Now I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia, for I do pass through Macedonia. And it may be that I will abide, yea, and winter with you, that ye may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go." For I will not see you now by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you, if the Lord permit. But I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we do love you. We ask you today to uh, open up our hearts and let us to see and have uh, from this great text what you have for us. And, Lord, we do love you. We praise you now, and we just ask your blessings upon it. Let us clear our heads of the things of this world and the things of this life, that we may receive the Bible doctrine. Let us clear our hearts and our minds of the things that have cluttered them all week long. Let the Holy Spirit of God, may we confess any sin in our life. May we put aside those things that have blocked our fellowship with you, that maybe for just a moment of time, uh, the Word of God would would come in and, and touch our lives. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. 
Now, I want to look at verse 1 here for a moment, and it simply says this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. You know, with all of the other problems that this church has, and they've really got a lot of issues, uh, it's no wonder that they, we now begin to see as we open up this chapter, Paul has to give them instructions on something the other churches are already doing. And uh, it's no issue that they, it's no, no surprise that they have an issue with the concept of one, giving to the saints, and two, giving to their own church in general. And I, the first thing I want you to see, and I, I like the continuity of the Bible. I like how the Bible always kind of pulls itself together and stays uh, consistent. And the first thing I, I want you to see, I think it's important for those of you who are trying to get your Bible figured out, is the connection between chapter 15 and chapter 16 and how it ties into the resurrection. You know, the resurrection of Christ really changed the world in every aspect. Many times because, you know, we grow up in Christian homes and we go to church and we think of, you know, we never really step outside the box of, of how it all started and how it all affected everything. But I cannot impress upon you this morning how that, how that radically the world was changed uh, based on the resurrection of Christ. In one of the ways, it, and it is the fact that up to that point, the devil really had run the world through all of the nations. And that's why you find such a large emphasis uh, uh, back in the Old Testament on nations. By Daniel's uh, 70th week and Daniel uh, laying out the great vision is all based on nations. And the reason for that is, and those of you of Bible basics will remember this, I told you how that, that when God does something throughout the Bible, the devil does something to counter it. So what did God do? Well, we now know that the Old Testament is about the establishment and the calling out of the nation of Israel. So in the Old Testament, God established his nation. And what the, and what the devil did is then he established his nations. And literally in the Old Testament, the devil tries to run the world through the Gentile nations that he's in control of. This is why back in places in Isaiah and Ezekiel, you actually find where God addresses the devil through the leaders of those nations. He does it through the Assyrian. He does it through Pharaoh. He does it through Tyrus, king of Persia. And those were all real men who lived at that period of time. But in those passages, he's, he's addressing the devil through those men because in the Old Testament, God or the devil used nations to rule the world. And, of course, that ended with the resurrection. But you want to notice how it changes. Once the resurrection changed everything, God now is no longer going to run the world and try to reach the world through a nation. Now he does it through a church. We have the church age. So what's the devil do? <clears throat> He switches then from running the world through a nation and starts to run the world through a church. See? That's how it works. Resurrection really impacted the world to a great degree. The resurrection ended, at least temporarily, the kingdom of heaven. For now we see the establishment of the kingdom of God, the church, the body of Christ, you and me. God now ceases to call out a work through a literal nation, Israel. And now he calls out in a work through a spiritual body, uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, puts people into that spiritual body that he does that work. And so the resurrected changed everything on the planet. And most people don't see it because most people are not very observant. But the resurrection set the pattern for even for you and for me in the New Testament church. 
It's Matthew chapter 28 that in your Bible is the great resurrection chapter. And uh, I always love the account in Matthew because it, it really just kind of puts everything in a context. But it's Matthew chapter 28 verse 1 where the Bible says, uh, in the end of the Sabbath as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. Now this is the resurrection chapter. And this is where the two Marys come and they meet with the Lord. They, they don't know he's resurrected. They're coming to tend the grave or the tomb and, uh, and do whatever they're going to do. But they get a surprise because of the fact that, that he has resurrected and he, he meets them. And this sets up a great, a great study throughout the whole Bible of how that it all works. Because he resurrects on the first day of the week. Now that's our Sunday, if you don't know that. Uh, you notice the Bible never calls uh, Sunday, Sunday in the Bible. It never refers to Monday as Monday or Tuesday as Tuesday or Wednesday as Wednesday. It never uses that. And the reason for that is because the names of the week are basically named after the pagan gods. Saturday is named after Saturn, and Sunday is named after the sun god Baal, uh, and that was the day that Baal worshipped. Uh, worship the, that was their high day. And so the Bible is very clear never to use those pagan terminology when it refers to Sunday. It's always called the first day of the week. And uh, so we, we learned that the first day of the week sets the pattern for the New Testament church. You see, the Jews did everything on the Sabbath. That's Saturday. The New Testament church does everything on Sunday, which is the first day of the week. And you'd be amazed how many of God's people think that the Sabbath is Sunday. And uh, it's just because they have no clue about the Bible. They know nothing about it at all. And hopefully, if nothing else you learn out of this today, you'll, you'll go out knowing what, <laughs> what day it is. <laughs> that probably would be beneficial to you. But I want you to see the pattern. Now, not only did he come out of the tomb and arise on the first day of the week, and you'll find that in, in uh, Matthew chapter 28 and Mark chapter 16, verses 2 through 9, but this is also when he first appeared to people. And you'll find that in John chapter 20, verse 19. Also, based on the resurrection, the first day of the week, that's when the Holy Spirit of God came uh, on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Not only that, but you find that because of the resurrection, the church now, remember different from Israel, the church now commemorates his resurrection by meeting on the first day of the week. And, you know, I've always thought it absolutely, of course, it's par for the course for the Laodicean church. Uh, I know Baptist churches that, that, um, that and, and you need to understand, if you're a visitor here, or you're, maybe you're a couple of times you've only been here, you probably would pick this up the first time. Uh, this is not your traditional Baptist church. And the reason for that is because is I'm not your traditional Baptist preacher. And I, I, a lot of things that go on today I think is absolutely stupid. And I really don't say much because it's, you know, I got my own job here with you and, and you know, we do our own thing and I don't think it's my calling to go out and change the, the world and their mindset, Christian world, of what they believe. I could really care less. Uh, I'm only concerned that you know the truth. But I watch Baptist churches, and, you know, I know that we are, we are far down the line now, and, you know, everybody's lost their moorings, and we're lost as a frog in a hailstorm, you know, we can't find our way. But it, it never ceases to amaze me how Baptist churches actually lose sight of why things are the way they are. 
and many, many Baptist churches will have, and you, you probably have seen this, they'll have a service on Saturday night for the people that don't want to come on Sunday morning. Now, if you don't want to come on Sunday morning, here's how I can help you. Don't come at all. Now, we will never get to the point, and I, when you start talking like this, you know, people don't like it because, you know, I can't help it. I can't help it. I'm more biblical than you are. The Bible says the reason why they met on the first day of the week was simply because that's when he came out of the tomb. And it stands for something. And so having one on Saturday night because people are too lazy to get up on Sunday morning uh, so you can still get there in your church and pretend that you are so much care about, hey, I want to get people saved as much as anybody. But there's an interesting thing in the Bible. Jesus Christ never violated his own principles to win anybody to Christ. And the principle is you meet on the first day of the week. It's just that simple. And uh, that's what you do. And I think what happens, and I know this is true, what happens is when you start to allow that, people then will take that and they will lose sight of the importance of the first day of the week. The reason we meet on the first day of the week and the reason these things are done on the first day of the week is because it's connected back to the resurrection that without that, we'd all be wasting our time. But you see, big-time churches today, they don't care about doctrine. They don't care about truth. They care about two things, nickels and noses. And so if you don't want to come on Sunday morning, you know, and I know as well as I'm saying this, some of you are thinking in your mind right now, well, there's people who, who, who work on Saturday night. Well, you know what? We have people that work on Saturday night too. I mean, I don't know any church that doesn't. And sometimes that happens, and that's the way it is. But violating a biblical principle because you have people that work on Saturday night never sounded like a good idea to me. Because where do you draw the line with that in time? See? And of course, you know where it goes. Human nature will always take it and, and just do all the destructive things that it can do. And in the time, you have a problem. So he arose the first day of the week. He appeared to the Marys the first day of the week. And I thought that was always instructive, that there was no men there. Now, ladies, the next time you want to get something on your husband, when he throws it up in your face that it wouldn't be for you in the garden, we wouldn't be in this mess, just remind him that when the Lord came out with the greatest event in the Bible, it was only the women that believed it enough to show up. All the men were chicken. And even my buddy John wasn't there. So throw that in his face. And if that doesn't work, see me for marital counseling. We'll get it worked out. <laughs> He appeared to the Marys the first day of the week. The Holy Spirit of God came the first day of the week. The church met the first day of the week. And now we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, that this is when they take up the offering the first day of the week. Every, everything we do as Christians, everything we do is tied in and around and back to the resurrection because the resurrection of Christ impacted the world. Now, in this passage, there's two different aspects that he talks to them about, and I want to talk to you about here in just a, for just a few moments. Now, the first thing I want to look at, or the first aspect, and I'm going to kind of reverse them in the order, uh, I want to show you is, is uh, how it has to do with the individual Christian in his giving to the work of the Lord. And he says in verse 2, 
upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gathering when I come. Now, the first aspect of giving has to do with the individuals within a church. Giving back to God based on the, uh, the mercy, the grace, the abundance, and all of the things that God has given to us, going back to the resurrection. You know, when you've been in the ministry for a long time, if you've got any brains at all, you start to see how things fall into patterns, and you start to see what works, what does not work. And this is called wisdom. If, you know, young guys could get that when they first get into the ministry, I think things would go a lot better, but it doesn't work that way and probably shouldn't. But any good, healthy church should be four things. Now, I don't like the word self, so, uh, because, you know, self is always a bad thing, you know, because it's always about you. But I'm not using the word self in a, in a bad connotation. I'm using it in a good connotation. Every church should be four things. If it's a good, strong, healthy church, <clears throat> then it ought to have these four aspects to it. When I look at churches or I evaluate churches in my own mind, these are the things that I look for. First of all, a church should be self-governed. In other words, the leadership should come from within. Churches get into all kinds of problems because when the pastor dies or retires or leaves or decides to go do something else, uh, he has to look outside his own church to find leadership because he hasn't trained any. And it just goes from one bad problem to another. Churches ought to be self-governed. Many churches, like the Southern Baptist Convention, they're told what they have to preach on Sunday. They get lessons that come up from Louisville, uh, and those lessons are for the whole year, and uh, you don't have a choice of what you're going to preach. You follow the curriculum that they, they give you. We don't do that here. Uh, no man tells us what to preach. We preach what the Holy Spirit of God leads us to preach. Every church ought to be self-governed. Every church ought to be self-propagating. That, in other words, self-growth. It ought come from within. And that's why, you know, I follow these things. I, I believe these things. I believe that this is what a church should be. And that's why, you know, I, I'm never interested in how build a building we got. I'm never interested in, you know, the location. Well, you've got a great location. Well, when God's Holy Spirit's bringing people to you, whatever location you got is a good location. But you see, we've lost that aspect today. We, we don't put ads in the paper. Uh, we, don't, uh, we, don't, we have a website, but you try to have a hard time finding us from the website. The website just either make you mad or make you glad. That's what it's designed to do. We don't, we don't, you've heard me say it before, we don't have some humongous sign out front. Because I believe that if any church grows in a true test of any church, it's not, what, it's not the outside things that draw people to it, it's the lives of the peoples in your church that does it. And when you believe in this work and you believe in God and the Bible changes your life, you know what you'll do? You'll bring people to church. You'll be involved in their life. They will see the difference in your life, and you will bring them where you go, and then they'll decide whether they like it or whether they don't. But every church ought to, be, ought to grow from within. Every church ought to be self-cleaning. And that means that you handle your own problems internally yourself. And you preach the Bible. You preach the truth of the Bible. You preach the doctrine of the Bible. You don't preach secondary issues. I don't preach my preferences. I don't preach my convictions. I preach what the Bible says, and uh, that'll stand for itself. That'll take care of the cleaning process because you have people that come into any church 
that immediately, once they're in a service, they say, this isn't for me. I like that. That's the way it's supposed to be. Let's don't have any false impressions going on here. And you find people who come to a church service and they say, wow, I really like it. This is what I've been looking for all my life. I like that. That's the way it's supposed to be. And the church ought to be self-cleaning. When you get out of fellowship with God and you, you uh, start to way out of the, get out of the line of, of fire here as far as the ministry is concerned and you start to uh, check out, uh, you know, you, you, know you, ought to get, you ought to get upset at some of the sermons that get preached. That's good. That's a healthy thing. You start living your life and doing wrong and not doing right. Uh, you ought to get upset and mad when somebody comes to you and say, are you doing this? That's a good thing. That's, that's what a healthy church does. Uh, we have to keep each other accountable. And that's, what, that's the way it works. It, it works from the inside. That's what it's supposed to do. And you can always tell people's reaction uh, when they're out of fellowship with God, how they respond to truth. That's a good thing. And then the fourth thing is the church should be self-sufficient. We don't, we don't have any bake sales. We don't, have any, we, don't, we don't look out for people to give us money. Uh, bottom line is a church needs to be self-sufficient. It needs to be self-supporting. It needs to be from within. You see, when these things are taking place within a church and the church is growing properly, then you're going to find that the, I guess the two greatest words that are, it's really missing in the church at Corinth uh, comes into our life and comes into our everything that we do. And I think these are probably two of the greatest words that you're ever going to find uh, as far as your everyday growth and relationship with Christ. And it's two simple words. We use them all the time. We hear them all the time. We just never really understand them, I don't think. And the first word is faith. The second word is grace. And understanding how they work in our lives is really key. Now, I'm going to define them for you a moment, and then we're going to look at some comparisons between the church at Corinth and the way it should be. But let's define them. And I believe they're absolutely the two key elements at work in, in our life, not only at the time of salvation, but even after you get saved. The Bible says in the book of Philippians that God has begun a good work in you, and he wants to perform that work under the day of Jesus Christ. We know now the day of Jesus Christ, the rapture of the church. So what I'm saying is this. That good work that he starts in you is a work of you growing spiritually in these two aspects. Everything in your Christian life, everything you are or everything you aren't, will be found and formulated in these two words, faith and grace. They're the two. They're the two. That's just the way it works. You see, faith, faith is your ability to believe and trust in God with what he says. That's faith. Faith is your ability that when God tells you something, you have the ability to believe it. In this church right now, there's people who are on different levels of that faith. Some of you can just about take anything that comes your way because you've grown and the aspect of faith in your life is very strong. So the bumps in the road of life really don't deter you. Other people are maybe in that midway point where you can deal with most things, but some things will throw you a curb and you'll struggle with it. Other people, you know, you're barely just got saved and you're trying to scratch your way through this thing, but things get to you, things bother you. And your, your ability not to trust God in things in your life, uh, you know, the devil uses that against you. You see, God wants to use everything in your life, everything. We get the idea that it's just the good things. But when you really have faith 
and you understand faith in your life, then you realize that faith is the ability to trust God in the bad things and then be able to see that within the bad things, God has just as much for you as he does when you have the good things. That's tough sometimes, isn't it? Now, grace. Grace. A grace, on the other hand, is the ability to use that faith for the things of God. And I think that's what we don't do today. You know, Christianity has two basic fundamental issues. One, we don't grow in faith, so we never get grace. Two, we do grow in faith, but we never use the grace properly with the faith that we've got. We never see it as it really is. And, and I'll be honest with you, if you've got marital problems, I can, I can pretty much fix that for you if you just do what's right. If you have personal issues in your life, and unless you're an axe murderer, you know, I can usually fix things that are going wrong in your life. But the hardest thing I've ever never found a real clean solution to. I mean, I know what the answer is, but the answer is, is so, it's so hard to apply everything in your life with everything else you've got going in the world that we live in. The hardest thing I've ever found is to get someone to understand and a process to get them get faith and grace working in their life. I'm not sure there's a fast track to that. I think that that takes a commitment on your part and my part of years. And the reason why I say that is is because I guess the greatest story that we're going to kind of weave in and out of here today is probably one of the greatest men in the Bible. Remember last week when I gave you those systems of seven, I told you there were seven men in the Old Testament that really was an example of what your life and my life should be. That if you really want to have the victory in your life, you get these seven men because each one of them deals with a different aspect of the Christian life in type, that that's where you start. And for you and for me, in the understanding of faith and grace, I think the greatest example of that is, is the life of Abraham. You know, we talk about faith and, you know, uh, faith is an important thing. And we use it as a, as a word in our sermons or our testimonies or telling somebody how to get saved. But do you realize that in Romans chapter 14, down around verse 22 or 23, it simply says to you and me that in your life and my life that whatever is not of faith is sin? Now, did you, did you live that like that the day you got saved? I didn't. Five, six, seven, eight, nine years down the road, did you, did you live that way? I didn't, but there had to come a point in your life when you do. And I think the process of that is found no better anywhere in the Bible than in a man's life named Abraham. And I think Abraham gives us a study of faithless to faithful. I think that he is a great picture of all of that. And I think, uh, you know, if, I don't know about you, but I have really one goal in my life and uh, it's a goal that uh, I, I want in God's mind, I want God to look at me as his friend. And uh, that's all I really want. My goal in life is, and I like people. I'm a people person or I wouldn't be in the ministry. And I enjoy people. And it bothers me when people don't want me to be their friend because I'm a nice guy and I like to have friends and I like to be nice to everybody. But on a scale 1 to 10, I could care less when it comes to my relationship with God. If, if anybody wants me or likes me or cares about me, there's only one real person that I want to impress to the point where he says, you know, Bob Alexander, he's my friend. 
And that's God. And the Bible says that Abraham was God's friend. Abraham was God. In fact, there's only two men in the Bible that it says was God's friend. The other one being Moses. And in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8, it says, Abraham, my friend. Well, I'll tell you what. God could take any reward I would have and any inheritance I would have and just give it to whoever he wanted. If I could just stand there and he looked down at me and he'd say in front of everybody, yeah, he's my friend. That'd mean a lot to me. But I learned that the process of getting there is not always easy. And Abraham is that example. You see in Abraham's life how he learned to have faith and then how he learned to have grace. And grace is our ability, that how we use that faith. It's our ability through our faith to give God uh, exactly what he wants based on what our understanding of the grace of God was when he gave it to me. Uh, and that's, a, that's quite a mouthful, that the two grow together. And you know what else? You can't have one without the other. You see, they're completely different. Grace is one thing. Faith is something else. But they're connected together. And you can't have one without the other. You don't have them both. You don't have either one of them. It's one of those weird things in the Bible. And uh, you you can't have faith and not have grace. And you can't have grace and not have faith. A lot of people think they do, but when you line it up against the Bible, it becomes another whole concept. They got to grow together. You see, and that's the key. Grace is, faith is believing what God says. You see, that's seeing God. And grace is, doing what he says after you see it. And that's tough. Now, the Bible says, and here's how it works. Just so I want you to get this whole thing. The Bible says when you got saved, God gave you grace to be saved. You cannot get saved without grace. Grace is the element that runs from Genesis to Revelation. <clears throat> without grace, there would be no salvation. The Bible says that Noah <clears throat> found grace in the eyes of the Lord. All right, what does that mean? It means God in his goodness and his grace provided a salvation for Noah. And God found, Noah found grace in the eyes of God. So grace is the first key. And grace is something that you and I had to have to get saved. But here's the key. Romans chapter 12 verse 3 says that when you and I got saved, God gave us the faith that gets saved. He gave it to us in a measure. Didn't give us all the faith. In other words, what I'm saying is, when God saved you, and when I got saved, God gave me just enough faith to believe His Word for salvation. Now, if you'd have told me the day after, the week after, the hour after I got saved, that God was going to move me out of Kansas, or move me out of Canton, Ohio, and take me to Kansas City, and going to put all the things in my world that He was going to do, if you'd have told me that right after I had just gotten saved, I'd have had a heart attack. You know why? Because I didn't have the faith at that point to believe God in that aspect of my life. All I had was a measure of faith just to believe what God said about salvation. And that's the way it works. You see, God gives you and me just enough faith to trust that word in Romans' road of salvation to get saved. But he hasn't given you enough faith to deal with the medical issues down the line or problems with your kids yet or problems in your marriage or problems at work, or losing your job. You see, he hasn't given you all that yet. That's why when a person gets saved, it's like a a baby being born. 
I mean, when your baby's born, it would be a good thing, but the week after it's born, you don't tell it to get out and get a job. <laughs> they don't have the ability to do that any more than you or I had the ability the day we got saved to go out and do great things for God. Now, a lot of God's people think they do, and that gets them in trouble. But this thing of faith and grace has to work its through, way through in your life and in my life. And God gives me the measure of faith to be saved. Then the Bible says, and that's what it says, by, uh, by, you're, you're saved by grace, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, through faith. Then you take that measure of faith once you get saved, and then you develop that. And that's what you see in the life of Abraham. And that's what I see in so many of your life. How does some of you come in here five years ago who knew nothing about the Bible and in the short time of three or four or five years come to the point where you've grown now immensely, you're handling major responsibility in things with people's lives that five years ago you would never have thought you could do? What is that? You know what that is? That's you taking the measure of faith when you got saved and then developing that faith through the process and God gives you the grace along the way to keep growing and put it all together and to use what God says and has given you and day by day you have developed your faith. And that's what spiritual growth really is. It's simply taking the measure of faith that God gave you the day you got saved and in five years down the line, you ought to be a whole different person. And when you're not, it shows you exactly what has not happened in your life. Now, Hebrews chapter 5, down around on verse 14, talks about this. And this is where he says in that great chapter, he says, by this time, some of you ought to be teachers. And he says, what is this deal? We got to go back and teach you the first basic principles of the Word of God. And then he talks about strong meat belonging them, belonging to them who are full of age. How? By reason of use. And then he says they did what? They exercised their senses to discern both good and evil. You know what they did? They took that measure of faith and they grew it. And as you grow in faith, you cannot help but grow in grace if you grow right. This is what's failed in the church at Corinth. And this is why they've got so many issues. As your faith grows, your trust in God... <clears throat> you're able to have more of the grace of God in everything that you do. Now, here he's talking about the aspect of the grace of giving. And you better get it straight. The, the greatest single characteristic of God is giving. For God so loved the world, he gave. That is the greatest single characteristic of God. And you're going to see how the church of Corinth uh, does not figure into that. And there are two different concepts, this idea of faith and, and grace, but they, they have to grow at the same time and they have to grow together. Now, you don't hear me preach hardly at ever about giving and money. I never do. I mean, it's in our discipleship in one of the lessons and there's time to time on Bible study, somebody will bring it up. And, you know, it's just by... What am I going to do? Skip chapter 16 today? Just because, you know? So it comes up in the Bible and you got to teach it and you got to deal with it. But if you've been in many churches and you've been around for many a long time, you know that what happens in most churches, you get, you get 15 minutes Bible and 40 minutes to give more money. And everything is built around that. And you got guy after guy after guy after guy after guy coming up and saying, now we need to do this and we need to do that. And I just, you know, 
there was an evangelist, and they're all this way to a certain degree, <clears throat> but there was an evangelist here years ago that now got a big church uh, over here in Kansas. And he started out as a young evangelist, and he was, he was the heartthrob of every church because everybody wanted him. And he ran the route of all evangelists, and uh, he never learned the principle that God always pays for what he orders. So he got real big for his britches too quick, and like all situations, he got into financial problems. And so he, he's not out of a church because he didn't want to align himself to one church because he's, he's hitting all the different denominations. So he wasn't under a New Testament church who really should have been running his ministry anyhow. He was pretty much independent, wanted to do his own thing, didn't want to be accountable to anybody. Ah, now here comes the problem. He gets a financial crunch, big time. <clears throat> so what he does, and we got these, uh, we've got them someplace. We kept them just for, 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 just for fun. We get these letters in the mail, if you're on his mailing list, how that, 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 that the ministry's had a downsurge and, uh, you know, the economy and all these things and all that stuff. And now it's a thing where he needs money. And he's just, you know, the ministry can't go on. And then he tries to put a guilt trip on you by telling you that if you don't help him out and send him money, there's going to be people that aren't going to be able to hear the gospel and it's going to be your fault. Now, he doesn't say it that way, but that's what he's trying to say. My idea is, so what? He's the true light, the light of every man coming to the world. He doesn't need you anyhow. I feel real good about not sending you any money. Well, <laughs> what happened was is the fact that we got two or three of these letters. And when that doesn't work, and these guys are shameless. They're shameless. So what happened the next time was the fact, and my wife can bear this out, what happened the next time was we got another letter after we got about three or four letters, and this one was from his wife. And now his wife was saying how depressed he was. Please help my husband. He's given up everything for the ministry, and he's so depressed. We need your help. And if you don't help us. You know, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I've never seen him so despondent. He wants, has such a burden to reach souls. He has such a desire to see people saved. And God is, uh, you know, God is God, and we need your help. So please, please, send something. I sent him a Bible. I thought that would help him out a little bit. <laughs> I don't think he appreciated it. <clears throat> please help me. Do this, do that, do this. You know, I was expecting three weeks later to get a letter from his dog, <laughs> big paw print on the end. My master doesn't play with me anymore. He just sits around and mopes around, you know. I haven't had any tr dog treats for about three or four weeks now. Please do something. Spot. Put a sign on it. You know? <laughs> That's not my style. If this church ever falls into financial disarray, unless something intervenes in that thing, you'll never know it till I get up that morning and say, we're closing the doors. Or maybe the ones that are giving will get a letter and saying, we got a downsize and we're going to move over here. And the ones that aren't giving won't get any letter. And when you show up, you can have it and do whatever you want to do with it. I think it's an absolute embarrassment to God for any pastor to get up and beg for money from his people to keep the church going. Let me say something to you and understand it. If this thing isn't worth investing your life and your money in, and then let's just shut the door and be done with it. This idea of freeloading and doing whatever you want to do with your money, but when it comes to the work of God, you just can't do it. You've got all everything you've got to get going. Hey, that may be your deal, but I'm telling you right now, 
I will never get up and say, look, guys, uh, you know what? We're, we're gonna, we can't pay this bill. We can't pay that bill. I'll just shut the doors. I could care less. You see, I'm not doing this for income. I'm not doing this for money. I'm not doing this. That's why I never say anything about it. Hey, if it's your church, then it's your responsibility to pay the bills. And if you don't want to do it, then they just shut it down. Oh, that's simple for me. I know these guys, boy, they just try every angle. They have, they have stewardship banquets. They have a big banquet and bring people there, and the whole purpose is to bring some guy in, and it will motivate you, and then have you fill out a card of what you're going to give for all year. Or they'll give you pledge cards. Oh, it's coming around that month. The deacons are going to show up, and they're going to start saying, oh, you pledge so much so we can make our budget. Hey, you know what? I don't even know what our budget is. I don't even know we have a budget. I don't really care. That's not my job. It's the job of you. If this is your church, then that's what you do. I'm not going to get up and beg about that thing. That's stupid. I wouldn't drag God through the mud. If God is not the Lord of your life to do the things in your life that you give back to him, we probably shouldn't even have this place. That's where I'm at with it. My position is simple. This church is not investing your life in and your family in and your kids in and your money in, and let's shut it down. Well, you say, and I've known churches that get, get they, they make out the most, they probably spend $6,000 on offering envelopes. They're printed with gold trace around it. Everything on there suggests that you, we get our, we get, we get our, we get our offering envelopes at Costco. They're just the white envelopes that you would send. In fact, if you're smart, you could just steal three or four of them. You wouldn't have to buy them. You could just use them at home. See, I believe the Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, if any man love God, the same is known to him. That if God's people love God, then there are certain characteristics that go along with loving God. You don't say you love somebody and tell somebody you love them and really love them, not give them something. Try that with your wife sometime. Or your husband or your kids. I told you last week, you know, Paul, uh, and Paul told us this when we, uh, when we studied last week. He says, when you get the grace and the faith and you grow in your life, then you become steadfast, you become unmovable, and you abound in the work of the Lord. And I told you last week, in any ministry, in any church, forget this church, any church, not everybody is going to pull their fair share of the load. And I'm just telling you, and I'll tell you this. I never look at the giving records. I could, care, I could know who cares less or who doesn't give, but I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you right now. I would bet you anything on this planet that the ones that invest their lives in this ministry are the same ones who invest their money in this ministry almost to a degree. You say, why are you basing on that? Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See how that thing works? That's not my job. That's why I never preach on it. I don't care. We'll close this sucker down faster than we open it up. Doesn't matter to me. I've always been able to get a job. It it did, those things don't, don't motivate me. I just look at it like I look at the Bible. It, it is or it isn't. I don't get in the middle and try. Either the Bible is the absolute word of God and it's proof that God is who he is or he's the biggest phony and faker the world's ever seen. That's where I stand on it. Black or white. It's either God's word or it's not. And I'll tell you something else. Either his promises are his word or they're not. And either God pays for what he orders or he doesn't. Just simple as that. 
And as long as God pays for it, God's people are on board, hey, I'm good to go. The moment God says, we're not in it anymore, I'm good to be out. It's just that simple. That's how it works. You see, the church at Corinth was a bunch of people who wanted to pretend that they were spiritual. They were going through all the emotions of it, but they really weren't. And based on the models in the Bible, you see, when I look at the church at Corinth and I see what Paul says to them and see how he talks about them and tells them, hey, look, the first day of the week is when you take up uh, the, the, the collection, not only for the saints in Jerusalem, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but for, for the church and for its structure. This is what you do. And growing in faith is also going in grace. Because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, what a great verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you? Do we? Or is that just a punchline that we use as Christians? Is that just a verse we put on a card because that's what we're supposed to do? Or do we really know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Thursday night was a great Bible study. We were a packed house. It was a good night to have a packed house for what we talked about. Faith in living, grace in giving. And based on that whole concept and the models in the Bible, I look, at, I look at that aspect in three things. I think there's a tithe, I think there's an offering, and I think there's sacrificial giving. And I think that that is illustrated nowhere better than the life of one of our seven men back here, Abraham. When you look at his life, I see my own life. And not only do I see my own life, I see many of you. Because... The models in the Bible are exactly what we're to follow. And you know, Christians are all different colors, shapes, and sizes, and, and, and the whole nine yards. But there's three basic areas of a Christian's life that are the key. That if you watch these three simple areas, it says everything there is to say about them. I'm not a mind reader. I can't see your heart. Many times people say, well, you don't judge me. You can't see my heart. No, you're right. I can't. I don't judge you in that sense because I can't see your heart. But I do know this. There's three basic characteristics of a good, godly Christian in the Bible that is operating by faith and operating by grace. And may I say, you don't have them. And when you look at Abraham, you find these things not only in his life, and here comes the important part, because nobody has them when you get saved. You get a measure of faith. But you're supposed to grow that faith. And as you grow that faith, you grow that grace. And giving is not just about money. The grace of God is about giving everything to God. Your time, your family, your wife, your husband. Guy says, I'd sure like to give my wife to God. He just won't take her either. I understand. <clears throat> Got to lighten these things up a little bit. Now watch this. The first thing I see about Abraham is, well, as I said earlier, he goes from faithless to absolute faithful. He can't trust God for anything. I told you before how vital it is in the Bible where God changes a person's name. And in the first time you start to pick him up around chapter 12, his name is Abram. And Abraham's a very rich guy. He's got a lot of things. But he hasn't come to the conclusion yet that God is behind the scenes and what he's got is because God is preparing him for something and everything he's got, God has given him. He didn't see that yet. He didn't see it yet. And so he goes as Abram, which means high father. But you do know how the story goes. He gets called out in Genesis chapter 12. And that calling out is a, is a picture of you and me being called out from the world, being saved. 
You see, when he got called out in Genesis chapter 12, he meets, he meets, uh, he, he, he goes out, God takes him out there under the starry night in Genesis chapter 15. And what does God do? He shows him the stars like we looked at last night. And he says to him, Abraham, someday your seed is going to be like those stars. Now that's the point where Abraham got saved. And when he believed God, the Bible says it was counted to him for righteousness. When you believe God, when somebody showed you the Romans road and you trusted Christ as your personal Savior, that's when you got God's righteousness imputed to you. He didn't have a Bible back then. God took him out and showed him the stars. And when God showed him the stars, the Bible says he believed God. And at that point, you know what Abraham had? He had the same measure of faith to believe God about those stars that you had and I had today, we believe God about the Romans road and Christ dying for me on the cross. But that's all he had. And he struggled, doesn't he? Boy, he struggles. Boy, I struggled. I didn't know, whether, didn't know there were so many dumb things to do after a person got saved the first five years of my life. I could write a book. And we all do the same thing, don't we? He got called out in chapter 12. He believed God in chapter 15. But boy, he struggles. Yeah, he believed God going to do this great thing. But when he had to leave, he took Lot with him after God told him not to. Then he goes down into Egypt down there and he gets messing around down there and the king looks at his wife and she says, whoa, she's a good looking woman. I think, is that your wife? Because if she is, I'm going to have you killed tonight and I'll just take her for my wife. And Abraham knows that. So he says, no, she's not my wife. She's my sister. And what he should have said was, yeah, she's my wife, and you think about killing me, God will spraddle you out on the road someplace and run over you for 100 years. Ooh, okay, yes, sir. Couldn't do it. You know why? He had enough faith to believe God about the stars. He didn't have enough faith to leave land of Chaldean without Lot. And when he got down into a hard place in Egypt, didn't have enough faith to trust God to get him out. We've all been there, haven't we? Sure we have. Sure we have. But his life is a picture of his attitude in three things. And this is what I look for in a Christian. This is the giveaway. This is the absolute dead give. I shouldn't even give you these. But it doesn't matter because you can't fake them. But they are the killer. And when somebody's telling me all of this and telling me that and telling me this and telling me that and look at me this and look at that and boy, I'm doing this and doing that. I just sit there and smile, you know, like I'm dumb, stupid, happy. Well, that's great. Praise the Lord. You know what? And I appreciate what you say. But our bottom line is talk is cheap. And I have people lie to me all the time, every day of the week, all week long, all day long. They tell me one thing when they know that's not the truth, up sun side and down the other. And they're dumb enough to think that I don't know what's going on already. I just play dumb. You know what my best job is as a pastor? Dumb. <laughs> Wasn't it your church years ago you had a pastor named Darlin Dumb? That's a good name, Bob. Amen. Amen. Darlin Dumb. But these three things are always at work. And they have to do with attitude. You know, you get these big signs. You know, everybody says it, attitude is everything. And that's true. That's true. But when you look at Abraham's life, and he's a model of the struggle of grace and faith in our lives, we see three areas in his life that are dead giveaways. First thing we see is his attitude and his relationship with God. It was most important. Second thing we see is his attitude and relationship with other people. 
Here comes the third one. Yeah, and the third one was, it is attitude in relationship to giving to God through grace. Those are the three killers, boy. You say, I read my Bible. I, 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 I witness. I do this. I do that. Hey, fine. How do you match up to these three? Because at the end of the day, this is all that matters. These are the three things. So he's called out in Genesis chapter 12, but oh, look what happens. In chapter 14, verse 18, he's hearing the story now where he meets a man by the name of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek represents the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. I don't have time to get into that. But he represents Christ in the Old Testament, and he meets up with Abram. And lo and behold, first time you find it in the Bible. Because see, he got saved back there in chapter 15. And even though he's got a lot of struggles and makes a lot of mistakes and he's doing a lot of dumb things, he's on the path of growth of faith and grace. And you know the first thing it says he does when he meets Melchizedek? The Bible says he gives him tithes of all that he has. Wow. First time tithe shows up in the Bible. And just two chapters later as he continues to grow, guess what happens? God changes his name. And now he's no longer Abram, high father. Now, because of the process of growth, you know, I can almost say in some of your lives, this sounds stupid to some of you, but some of you that have come in here from day one and I've watched you grow and I've been involved in your life and helping you, I can honestly say, I can almost, almost say the time when I saw God change your name. I really can. I'd never tell you that. Uh, but I, I want to tell you, I, I, I know what that concept means. I see that turning point in people's lives. And that's what it represents in the Bible. Because he went from high father to the father of many nations, Abraham. And at that point, God never calls him Abram again. And it, because you know why? Because Abraham, even though he's still got a lot of issues, he's on track now and he's never going back and he's, he's going to only go forward. So we see him in this scenario here where now he, he starts out Abram, but now in chapter 8, 17, excuse me, chapter 17, he's now called Abraham. He's growing. He's growing. And then we come to chapter 18. And I don't have time to show you the whole chronology of time here, but some time passes by the time he gets to chapter 18. He gave his tithe back there in chapter 14 after he got saved back there in uh, chapter 12 and got called out. So some time passes. And now here we have in chapter 18 of Genesis uh, an incredible chapter because here's where the Lord himself shows up. And we see by this story that he has, he's done some things with that measure of faith. You know, he got that measure of faith back in chapter 12 and God put the whole thing together through a process and now we come to chapter 18. We have seen where he even though he's still making a few bad choices, boy, he's really, 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 really coming along. And we see the development of those three areas, his relationship, his attitude and relationship with God, his attitude and relationship with other people. And we see it in his relationship to the grace of giving back to God based on what God's given to him. This is what the church of Corinth could never get straightened out. Now look at chapter 18, verse 1. If you don't want to turn to it, I'll just read it for you. Here's what it says. And the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre as he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door, and he bowed himself toward the ground. 
And he said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch uh, a morsel of bread. Now I call, I have a sermon that I have preached for 35, 40 years. And it's based on those three aspects, of those three attitudes. And uh, within this sermon, what I'm about to show you here, we're not going to preach the whole sermon, obviously, but what I show you here is what I call a morsel of bread versus the great feast. And in that contrast, you see where God's people are today, and you see what a church at Corinth was. Now, he says, verse 5, And I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort ye in your hearts. After that, ye shall pass on. Therefore, you are come to your servant. And he said, So do as thou hast said. Now, here it comes. And Abraham hastened unto the tent unto Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it, make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran unto the herd and fetched a calf tender and good, and he gave it unto the young man, and he, and he hastened to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed, and he set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. Now, there's a number of things, but this is, I want you to see his attitude. Look at verse 5. He says, let me get you a morsel of bread. Wow. If that's a morsel of bread, I hate to see him do a feast. I mean, in comparison, uh, you know what he's learned? He's learned that a thing now in his growth, he who can't outgive God. He's learned that. He's learned a great lesson that most of God's people in the church at Corinth could never learn. They never learned the fact that, uh, you know what, it's a thing where God, uh, you'll never outgive the Lord. And everything you have, you got because God gave you to you. And now he's understanding that concept. And so he says, I will fetch a morsel of bread. And wow. And then the other thing I want you to see is his attitude about it. You see, he's the poster child for 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, where it says, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he has purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Notice, he's running to do these things. He's running. He's hastening. He's running into Sarah. He's running down and saying, get a, get a calf. And you know what? He's picking out, I mean, he did, it, it tells you. He fetched a calf tender and good. Now, if that had been you or me, we'd have got some three-legged calf that nobody wanted. We'd have got one the vet said, well, you need to put him down in the morning. No, not just yet. We're going to hate you here in just a minute. No, you know, you know, you know what he come to? He hasn't got all of his life together yet. He's got a lot of issues he's got to work on. But I'll tell you where he's going. He's growing in grace and he's growing in faith. And he's growing in faith because he's learning to trust God. And he's growing in grace because now he's understanding that everything he's got, he got from God anyhow. And he's not to the place where he's, he, he, he's realizing those things. And he ran. He enjoyed giving to God. Why? Because he sees what God has given to him and he understands. And it says down there in verse 7, every man according as he has purpose in his heart. That doesn't mean whatever you decide. That means as you grow in grace, you get God's heart. And when you get God's heart, you get God's purpose. And when you get God's heart, you get God's purpose. You get the faith to see it and the grace to give it. And then you give based on God's purpose for your life, not your own. What it's talking about. Now look at verse 8. And he took butter and milk 
and the calf which he had dressed, and he set before them, and he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. He didn't eat with them. You know what you got a picture of here? You see, he gave the tithe back here in chapter 14. And now he's growing to the place where he knows the tithe is not enough, so he sets up the example of an offering. He gives over and above what he just gave him, and he's not partaking of himself. He's not eating it himself because he's giving it to the Lord. That's what an offering is. An offering is something you give over and above the tithe that you give over and above that. And that's what he's at. He's growing. He's getting to the point in his life where he's getting there. Now, by contrast, I want you to just to take a second. You got to see this. Remember, come back over to chapter 19, just one page over. And just look at a great contrast. See the contrast of Lot here for a moment. Look at chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. And there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in. I pray you and your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and rise up early, and go on your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. And he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned into him, and entered his house. And he made them a great feast, and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. You see how my contrast is? A morsel of bread versus a great feast. See the attitude different? Abraham says, let me do you a morsel of bread, and he puts on a feast. Abraham, a lot says, let me make you a big feast. Have you ever eaten unleavened bread? Unleavened bread is them crackers we give you at communion. Thank God that they only come in small little pieces. Because you can never make sandwich and cheese out of them in any way, shape, or form. They are the God-awfulest things you will ever eat in your life. There's no leaven in them. And it's the worst bread you can ever have. But I want you to see the attitude. One gives to God a great feast, and his attitude is, based on what God has given me, this is the morsel of bread. The other one doesn't do anything for God. In fact, if you notice, the angel, you know what Sodom and Gomorrah is, don't you? Do I have to enlighten you on that? As all the new scholars tell you, it was a God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of their lack of hospitality. Oh, no, 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 no. There was plenty of hospitality there. No, there was plenty of hospitality there. But the thing that always got me was these angels, they know what's out in the street. They know what's going on. And they would rather stay in the street with them than stay in Lot's house. And Lot's a picture of a Christian. Get a different attitude? One of them says, well, I'm going to make you a morsel of bread and gives a great feast. The other one says, well, I'm going to give you a great feast and gives you the God-awfulest stuff you ever had to eat in your life. That's the difference. When I used to preach this message years and years ago, and I don't ever really preach it to you guys, but when I used to preach this message, I'd, I'd build this thing along those, two, those three areas that we talked about of attitude, and at every junction, I'd stop and I'd just get real quiet and I'd ask the people, are you a lot or are you an Abraham? You got to see how quiet it gets. You see, we deceive ourselves. Lot had deceived himself. You see, Abraham had it all, but he knew and never forgot where he got it all. And he got it from God. Lot, on the other hand, wanted it all, didn't care how he got it, and he just wanted to keep it. <laughs> there you are. Now, I'll show you something here. 
I love things like this. If you look at 19.1, you'll find, and compare with 18.1, you'll find that the Lord and two angels showed up with Abraham. But when those two angels go down to Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord doesn't go. You know why he doesn't go? Because the Lord's not going to have any fellowship when you're living in Egypt and Sodom. Now, you better mark that down. I don't don't know how many colored pens we got back there, but I'd find every color there is and mark it every color you got. The Lord didn't go. And I guarantee you, if you would have asked Lot how his relationship was with God, he'd have told you it was the greatest thing in the world because that's what people say today. Lot never even knew that the Lord did not come down to be with him. Lot never understood that the Lord would not fellowship with him because of his rotten attitude and everything that he's doing and where he's living. Now, you know, for you and for me, I know none of you are homosexuals. At least I hope you're not. But I'm going to tell you, Sodom and Gomorrah and Egypt in the Bible is a picture of the world. Pharaoh's a type of the worldly system, a type of the devil. And God would not, here's a child of God living down in Sodom who is at the values of Sodom. uh, I'm not talking about being a homosexual. The values of Sodom are completely against in every attitude that God had. And when he's living down in Sodom, when he's living out in the world, God won't go and fellowship with him. And yet, if you just said, how are you and God doing? Oh, God is so great. You ought to see me the verse God gave me this morning. God wouldn't even go down. Now, I'll show you something else. You don't have to turn to this, but you need to mark this down. Jeremiah 44, 26. Now, when God changes your name, when I look at some of you and see your faces today, and I know that God changed your name, I know you have your struggles, and I'm not saying you're perfect. I get thrown in my face all the time of how some of you who are doing the work of God are not perfect. God, I'm glad that person doesn't follow me around. But I think we ought to follow them around. Nobody's perfect. But I'll tell you what some of you have going for you that some of you others don't have going for you. That I'm not making any distinction of who you are or who you aren't. I'm just saying. You have this in any church. Some of you with all your struggles and all your problems and you have issues and you're working through them and you're going to have to work through them and you got some, you got some things you got to work on. Some more serious than others. But there are some of you in here no matter where you're at in your life I can guarantee you one thing. You're not going back to the world. No matter how bad it gets, you're not going back to that slop pit that God brought you out of, nor are you going to hang around with God's people or any other body else people and make them the intimate friends of your life that are connected with that. Because that's exactly what Lot did. He vexed himself with the filthy conversation of this world. And that's what it means when God changes your name. God told the nation of Israel back in Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 26. He says, don't go back to Egypt. I brought you out of Egypt. Don't go back. Because if you do go back, you're going back by yourself. I'm not going with you. Yes, I'll still be living inside you. You're not going to lose your salvation. But you and I will have blank zero fellowship. Now, Israel never went back. 
But what the devil makes sure that he did that give Israel as much problem? He gave them the mixed multitude who always wanted to go back. See how it works? Now let me read you this passage. Therefore hear ye the word of the Lord, all Judah that dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, saith the Lord, that my name shall no more be named in the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, The Lord God liveth. You go back to Egypt, you go by yourself. You can delude yourself like Lot did and think you and God are just fine, but when you got one foot in the world and one foot with God, brother, you're, deluding, you're, you're in a delusion. When you're fooling around with things that you know is wrong in your life and you don't want to fix them and you want to keep on doing what you're doing and you want to pretend uh, that you got this great thing, let me say something to you. When the angels went down the lot down there in Sodom, the Lord wouldn't go. And he wouldn't go because God's not going back to those places. And yet I guarantee you, if you'd have asked, talked a lot, he would have told you, his great relationship with God. Are you an Abraham or are you a Lot? Now, you see how it all works? Faith and grace. You take that measure of faith that you get when you get saved like Abraham did and you grow it. And through that growth process, God develops your faith, you get grace. And you become steadfast, unmovable. Somewhere in the process, God changes your name. And you're always abounding in the work of the Lord. And along with that Faith and that grace comes not only the grace of you giving yourself to whatever God wants you to do, it gives you giving back to God based on what he's given to you. You see, we get the idea that your giving and my giving has to do with, with God needs it. Like if you don't give your money, the angels are not going to eat next week. You're an idiot. Like everything else in the Bible, it's for our benefit of growing in grace. And that was the way God has chosen to further the work of this institution called the church. And as you get faith to trust God, you also get the grace in giving to God. And by yourselves, other people in ministry, faith in living, grace in giving. Well, some time passes. And oh, Abraham now, somewhere in here, has become the friend of God. Through a process, just like every one of you and me, started the day we got saved. Some of us make it, some of us don't. Most don't, very few do. But now in chapter 22, it all comes together, doesn't it? Faith and, faith and grace come full circle. Not only does he not have enough faith, he, not only does he have enough faith when God says, I want you to give me your son. Now keep in mind, he's waited for this son for many, many years. He went through the mistake of Hagar, impatient with God early on. But now God finally gave him that boy when he was 99 years old. And Abraham's not going to have another child. And now just when he got this heart's desire and he had what he wants, God says, I want you to offer him up as a sacrifice to me. Now there's your grace and faith in full operation. You see, he had enough faith to know that if God asked that, that, that was okay. But he had enough grace to give him what was the desire of his heart and the love of his life. Both of them in together. You know what brings up a great point? Most of you never get here. Bless your heart. I feel sorry for you. 
Most will never get here. Most of God's people never get here because they never get that far down the grace route. But God will always test you with the things that you love. Most of God's people don't even know what I'm talking about. You know why? Because you never get to that point in your life. You never get to that point in your life. Abraham did. Abraham now stands at the place in his life where he gave the tithe. Then he, we saw the example of an offering. And now we're going to get a definition of sacrificial giving. It all the way goes back to 1 Samuel chapter 24, 24. Or 2 Samuel 24, 24. Where David uh, wins a great battle. And he wants to buy this threshing floor and make an altar to God. And, of course, the, uh, he's just won a great battle, and the guy who owns the threshing floor says, well, you're the king, you've had a great battle, and God's on your side. You just take it. And David says, no, how much do you want for it? I'm going to pay you for it. He says, you're the king. No, you take it. David says, listen, I'm going to make a sacrifice to the Lord, and for it to be a true sacrifice, listen to me, it has to cost me something. And he paid him and bought it. You know where that piece of ground's at today? That piece of ground today is where the Mosque of Omar are, the Dome of the Rock over there. The Muslims got it. But there's coming a time where God's going to get it back. You see, some of God's people are so worried about the economy. We got our measly 401, whatever we got thing in, in the last month, lost $17,000. I don't even look at it anymore. I think it's a joke. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, you got to prepare something down the line if you're smart, but at the end of the day, I mean, my faith is not in that thing. And you know what? Some people, if they'd have got that letter, they, they, they'd have ruined their whole day. I looked at it. We laughed. I threw it away and took the dog for a walk. <laughs> he did for me in the neighbor's yard exactly what I thought about the whole process. <laughs> Love that dog. <laughs> but some of God's people are so worried about the economy. See, they have no faith. Now, I'm telling you right now, the economy's in a mess and nobody's going to fix it. And uh, somebody says, well, you, everybody's got their opinion. Well, you know what? Get your money out of this and put it into gold. Buy silver. Uh, I, I, may I give you some good advice? My advice to you is to, uh, is, to, is to put your investment in the true riches of Luke chapter 16, verse 11. They're so worried about the economy, they have no faith, but they got no grace either. They're so worried about the economy, but they have not got one worry about the lost person that lives across the street from them. See how it works? You want to make an investment? Try Psalm 119, verse 127. I love thy commandments above gold. Yea, above fine gold. Some people can't figure why they can't get ahead in life. I'll tell you why. Because the Bible says in Luke chapter 16, verse 11. I always loved it. 1611. No, I know that's just an accident that nobody, God wasn't behind that. You know what he says? He says, you've not been faithful over the money God gave you. How am I going to commit to you the true riches? There's your problem. There's your problem. You see, the investments that we make in life. Now, Abraham had learned some things. And here's what he's learned. This is a great lesson. 
Now, in your life and my life, and I know I say this all the time. People rub me about it and kid me about it, but it, it just, it's part of my charm. Just bear with me. I always say, this is the greatest verse in the Bible. And then the next Thursday night, I'll say, this is the greatest verse in the Bible. <laughs> Don't you figure out, to me, they're all great verses in the Bible. I can't just decide on that day which one it is. You're so stupid, you can't see that. I mean, come on, give me a break. For your life and my life, for your life and my life as Christians, I'm going to give you the two greatest verses in all of the Bible for your life, bar none, joking aside, right on the money, the true greatest verses in the Bible, and this is what Abraham learned. The first one will fit into your life and my life and just about everything that it does. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It's probably the greatest single verse in the Bible for you and for me. It simply says that all things work together for good to them that love God who are called according to His purpose. If you can ever wrap your head around that verse, get that verse that it works for you, God will change your name and you'll be something else. Most God's people can't. We get into bad situations because we make some bad, stupid choices. That does not, and because we get a lot of pressure from a lot of people how bad we are, how stupid we are, and maybe we were stupid. It doesn't ever change the fact that God will take the very dumb things that you and I have done and turn them around to the very victory God wants to give you if you can get that verse right there. That doesn't mean the process out won't be painful. It doesn't mean you won't have to deal with some things. It simply will mean what it says, that he, he, will, he, he, he will take all things, all things, and work them to your good, who are called, here it comes, according to his purpose. See that thing, purpose? That's the same word purpose over there as purpose in your heart. You know what that word means in the Greek? It means purpose. It means same thing in the Greek, it doesn't a Swahili. And I speak Swahili. <laughs> he learned some things. Now, he, we've already seen that he fulfills Abraham just in our Old Testament study. We know now he fulfills the three requirements of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, doesn't he? He gives cheerfully. He gives as he purposes in his heart, loving God. And he gives God... Uh, he gives God... Uh, according to God's purpose. He, 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 he gets everything right, everything right. Now, let me show you the second verse. You see, the first verse is unconditional, but the second verse is conditional. And it's found over there in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. And here's what he says. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Now, when we, can, when we can claim that and we can see that, and that's second greatest promise in the Bible, uh, but it's conditional. Let's put it in its entirety here, going back 6, 7, and 8. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He that which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he hath purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Now here it comes, based on 6 and 7, and God, continuation, and God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that ye having, always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. Now there it is. First thing he says there is God is able. Somebody says, well, you don't understand right now. We're just not able to give. No, you don't understand. God is able. He never asked you if you were able. He asked you if you were willing. God is able. You want all grace to abound towards you? That sounds like a good deal to me. God is able. 
God is able to do everything. Why? Because God is able. What's he able to do in this case? To make all grace abound toward you. He likes that word abound. He talked about last week abounding in the work of the Lord. Now he talked about abounding in grace. Now that's a, that's, a, that's a financial institution to get involved in. That ye always having all sufficiency. He's not done yet. In all things. You see, God won't do what Obama did. Obama, when the comedy got into a mess, he went into the bailouts. And now we're seeing how that worked, aren't we? We're seeing the companies that he put money in went bankrupt, took $500 million of our money, took vacations with it, and saying, oops, and nothing will ever be done. You see, he's not smart enough to figure out that when you get in a financial mess, you usually got into a financial mess because you haven't done what's right with it. Throwing money on top of it to make it okay never fixes the problem. So God won't bail us out when we get into problems without us getting the right process in our life to get back. It's just that simple. God is able, yes, he is, to make all grace abound toward you. Certainly he can. That you always have all sufficiency, absolutely, in all things. Yes, he does. My God shall supply all you need according to Christ Jesus. But that verse is conditional, verse 8, on verse 6 and verse 7. See? Now, that verse says you can have all the grace and the sufficiency in all things and never lack for anything, but it's conditional on you giving back to God through your growth in faith and your growth in grace, i.e., going back to the life of Abraham, growing in faith and growing in grace. You see, some of God's people just never get it, and I don't preach on it. Maybe I should. Maybe I'm guilty of it for not saying more about it, but you know what? I, I figured that you stick around long enough, you'll give, pick it up or you won't, but maybe, I'm, maybe it's my problem. I, maybe I shouldn't. But God's people never get. They never understand why they get out of the mess they're in. They've never figured out that 90% of your income with God's blessings will go a lot farther than 100% of your income without God's blessing. And they never understand the consequences. They think it's no big deal. Hey, my friend, Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 says, Will a man rob God? Oh, me? Will a man rob God? Yet he have robbed me. But you say, wherein have you robbed me? In tithes and offerings. And I won't even give you the next verse that talks about <laughs> that talks about God putting a curse on you because you're stealing from him. I want you to sleep tonight. You know, the answer of most of God's people's financial issues is not getting in a financial advisor, though many people need to. It's, it, they have to. But I'm going to tell you something. In reality, it's just not, it's just starting to do what's right with what God already gives you. And that's why God won't fix it, financial ir- irresponsibility. And then he said that you may abound to every good work. Now, the last two or three weeks, I probably have gotten more compliments on those two sermons than in a long time. We talked about the resurrection. We talked about the glory of God, the resurrection body, all those things, and it's a great hoop-raw time. But I want to tell you something. To me, I can't speak for you, what I said today is just as exciting when I said the last two weeks because it's just as true. It's just as true. But we have a habit of picking the things that we like because they don't really smack us, but when it smacks us, we don't like it. Well, how do you like this one? This is just as exciting as the last one, see? I mean, it's just that simple. And then, very quickly, the second issue here that is concerning the collection of the saints in 16.1. And uh, here's what's happened. Down in Jerusalem, the Christians down there are going through a really tough time. And I think this is very significant that we learn this. 
they're going through a really tough time. Acts chapter 11, verse 28, 29, Romans chapter 15, verse 26, they're going through a very, very bad time. And the churches, the churches are taking up money to send down to them because of their going through such a tough time. Now, all the other churches are doing it. He's got to tell the church at Corinth, you need to get on board with this. And here's what's happening. The reason why they're having such a bad time, if you don't know this already, when all this thing changed over into the New Testament, the Christians at Jerusalem had a really tough time buying into dumping the Old Testament, getting into the New Testament. And they're struggling back and forth. And where the church of Antioch and the church at Corinth and Paul was going out and doing missionary trips, you don't see any missionary trips going out from Jerusalem. They're staying all collectively together. They meet with Paul, and James seems to be the head down there, and they meet with Paul. Paul explains with them, and they give Paul the right hand of fellowship, and they say, you're doing what you need to do. You go do it. We'll go back to Jerusalem. But they simply never do anything. This is why they've got the trouble they've got. This is why they've got the troubles they've got, because they weren't doing anything. This is why they've got. So what does he do? He gets all the other churches to help him out because God is good and God gives. He gets all the other churches to help him out and send it down there, hoping that they'll get their heads together and simply say, wow, they're helping us. We need to do what they're doing. See, that's the whole promise behind this. That's what he's trying to do. So God sends them a disaster. And hopefully in the relief that they get through the New Testament church, they'll, they'll, they'll get it together. But you know what the tragedy is? They didn't. They didn't. Just like a lot of God's people did. So you know what happens next? Oh, this is wonderful history lesson. You see, they couldn't buy into the gospel so they wouldn't get into doing what God wants them to do. God sent them people down there. God sent money down there. Even after they had did not done what's right, God still, because that's what God does. Finally, God says, you want to stay down there? And don't you remember that in the tribulation period, Jerusalem is called what? Sodom and Egypt. He says, you want to stay down there in that mess? Okay. You know what he does next? In 70 AD, because they wouldn't go out on their own, he sends Titus down, the Roman emperor. In 70 AD, Titus slaughters about 600,000 of them, crucifies them upside down on the road going out of town. And you know what the Jews do? They scatter out of there and they start doing what's right, i.e., learn the message today. Don't, don't, I mean, it's okay if you don't, but don't then scratch your head and say, I wonder why we can't ever get anywhere. I wonder why we keep having all these problems. I mean, hello, put it together. Two and two, you're getting six. Two and two is four. It versed the promise. The second greatest promises was that you will have all sufficiency and all grace. This church has an obligation. Like when Charlie's church went south through the tornado, we responded. We have our missionaries that we take care of, the Bush family. We've had other missionaries come through. That's our responsibility. We take care of our own people when they legitimately have issues. Operation Homeless is nothing more than us taking of the abundance that we have and doing it to somebody else. 30 measly peanut butter sandwiches. 
that means the world to somebody who doesn't eat. And yet I guarantee you in churches across this city, hopefully not in this church, there are people that say, well, I ain't doing that. And what, you look in your pantry and you've got 600 pounds of food and you're wearing 200 of it this morning. <laughs> you see, my ability to trust God in what he says is my faith. My ability through that faith to have the grace to give back to God with what he requires, that's grace. It starts with the day you get saved and God gives you that measure of faith. And just like Abraham, you struggle. But you start a process and at some point God changes your name and you start doing what the Bible says and you start growing in faith, growing in grace and God brings you along right with it to the point that God changes your name and someday you'll walk through that process where you pass the tithe, you pass the offering, and you realize that your purpose in life, God gave you that job that you got. He's given you everything that he's given you because that's really the bottom line at the end of the day. It all belonged to him anyhow. And the sooner you figure that out, the sooner I figure that out, the better off we're going to be. So you see, this was the church at Corinth's problem. This is most churches' problems. Pastors, I think, respond to it wrongly. They beg, they baby. Man, just shut the place down. God's always looking. You know what? Some of God's people lost their job because they wouldn't do right with God. What makes you think in time you won't lose your church? What you look back and you see what God did with Lot and God did with the nation of Israel, we ain't any different. We have an obligation as God's people to get into this thing and do what God's called us to do. And you abuse it, don't take it. I'm not talking to you now, I'm talking to God's people in general. You don't do what's right with it. It's a reason why God's people are in dead churches today and getting nothing from the Bible, that they got to find things to get excited about, and maybe it comes down to the wallpaper on the wall. Because God takes from you. When you don't take care of what God does for you, you find yourself in those situations. Never find yourself in a position in your life, ladies and gentlemen, where you're not growing in faith and growing in grace. It's the only thing that'll keep you where God wants you to be. And just as Abraham struggled through that relationship, through the growth process, we will too. But at the end of the day, you'll wind up being God's friend and that'll be worth the trip. Father, we do thank you. Praise you for the Lord Jesus. Lord, I thank you for this message today. And Lord, it was right in the scheme of things where we're just going. And maybe it's something we needed to hear. And Lord, I pray that your people will, will do with it as your spirit tells them to do. They know where I'm at with it. Most of them already did. I, I love this place, but you know what? I don't love any place that doesn't love God. And I don't want to be any place that doesn't do what God wants it to do. It's just that simple. And Lord, I pray, Father, that you'll take today and you'll bless the people's lives. Give us tonight as we go into that mission and, and uh, Jimmy preaches and Woody gives his testimony and, and Danny leads the singing and Bubba plays that the word of God will go forth. And Lord, as our people go out and pass out the tracks and pass out the sandwiches and pass out the coats and the socks and tell people how much we love them and, and by our demonstration of giving out of our liberality back to them. And Lord, uh, we just pray that you'll just continue to bless this church raise up men and women that are Christ-like in every aspect of their lives. And Lord, we'll be thankful. We'll praise you in Jesus' name. For sake we ask it. Amen.
Five minutes, folks, and I'll wait a quarter till. I'll meet my people back here that signed up on the list to go down to, to the, the homeless ministry tonight. We'll meet right down here. If, uh, if you're already in a team, I want the teams to one, two, three, four, five over there. And if you're already in a team, Sid, if you're not in a team, just stand up here behind me and I'll get you in a team. All right, God bless you. Thank you. Dismissed. Miranda, you walk by me without giving me a hug. That's not what you need to do. You break my heart. Uh, sorry. No, I, I love you. You're my buddy. Ooh. You got a, any time this week? Yeah, I got some time this week. You got some money? Sure. All right. <laughs> I got sure, the, you got the, you, you got the money, money, honey. You got the money, honey. I got the time. That's right. They made us talk about that. The old song says. Remember that song? Yeah. Got the money, honey. I got the time. That's my first favorite song. My second thing song was, I don't want her. You can have her. She's too fat. Remember that one? I remember that one, too. <laughs> Okay, you can't stop.